you have your Bibles, uh, I'd invite you to turn to uh, 1 Peter. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through uh, 21. On my Bible, it's uh, on page 1014. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to grab one in front of you or around you and, and follow along with me. This is the word of the living God. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. Uh, let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is true, it is inspired, it is alive, and it is powerful. And Father, I pray that as we read and hear and explain it, that your spirit would indeed work, that you would indeed resurrect those parts in our lives that are broken and hard and stubborn, that you would, like the Apostle Paul, show us the power of your resurrection, not just in the future when we stand before you and are acquitted of all charges, but in the present. May we taste and experience that same power that raised your son from the dead. Might we become acquainted with it now, equipped to live lives that honor and glorify you. Would you do this for your glory and honor in Jesus' name? Amen. Uh, good morning, Redeemer. Um, there's a book that we occasionally read in our family, and it's written by John Stott. And he works through the entire Bible in a year with brief devotions going all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And they're about one page long, and they've been really beneficial to me and my own soul. But he devotes uh, several weeks to what we would call the Easter season or Passion Week. And um, he has some striking questions around the nature of the resurrection and here's what he writes. He says that at some point, we must not ask whether the resurrection of Jesus happened, but why does it matter that it did? How can such an event that happened over 2,000 years ago have real significance for us today? And so this morning, I don't want to necessarily, my agenda isn't to prove to you that Jesus is raised. My assumption is that that's a given. What I want to do is maybe touch on why does it matter? that he's raised? Why does it matter that he is not on a cross? Why does it matter that he is at the right hand of the Father? And, and what does that mean for us here and now today? And Stott goes on to list several reasons why the resurrection matters. First, he says the resurrection matters because if you remember, Jesus was, was tried as, as, as a blasphemer. When they put him on the cross, he was going to the cross because they thought he was falsely um, claiming to be God. And, and by crucifying him and, and being buried, that, that, that their verdict was carried out on Jesus. And what Stott is saying is that, no, God reversed the verdict of men. Men called him an imposter, a fake, a phony, a blasphemer. And by raising Jesus from the dead, the father says, no, the problem isn't with the son. The problem is with you, right? You crucified the Lord of glory. And through raising Jesus from the dead, the father vindicated him, right? Stott goes on to say that another reason the resurrection matters is because we have the assurance of our forgiveness, 
How do we know that God is truly and fully satisfied with the debt that his son paid? It says he raised him from the dead to show you and I that you are indeed forgiven, that I have accepted the ransom. The third reason that the resurrection matters is because it shows us the the glorified body that we'll get. That as Jesus has went into the ground and was raised in power, Stott goes on to say that for all of you who are aching and aging and tired, we have a new body that God's going to put on us at the revealing of his son. And that is good news. But Stott goes on to say that, that we make the mistake in thinking that the benefits of the resurrection of Jesus are just out in the future or are in the past. He says there are present blessings surrounding the resurrection. So that's what I want to think about this morning. Like, why does it matter that this dead Messiah has been raised? What are the implications for us now? And here's the big idea. The one who has died is alive. So that you and I who were dead in our trespasses and sins can now live alive to God. The one who was dead, who is now alive, he has done that so that we who were dead might now live alive. And when I say alive, I'm using it synonymously with this sense of obedience, right? That have you thought about what the psalmist says, that, that in your commandments there is life, right? That in keeping your law there is life. How often do you and I equate the resurrection of Jesus with my capacity here and now to actually live holy lives? And that's what I want to link together this morning. We can be holy And we can please the Lord. And we're not condemned. If we talk about being free, we're free from the bondage of sin. We're free to serve and worship and obey our king right here and right now. And so I want us to think about this idea under this first heading that obedience is a big deal. You can say that back with me. Obedience is a big deal. There we go. Now, I want to show you in our passage. Right there in our passage, you see it in verse 14. Peter actually says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. We're going to flush some of this out, but I want you to just pay attention to that, that idea right there. Peter expects the people reading this to read this letter and to to obey, to to love obedience. And here's the thing. This is not the only place we see it in the letter. I want to make the case to you that obedience, this passage is sandwiched, right, between two other references to obedience. And and so go look up before it. Look up in in 1 Peter 1. Go all the way up there to verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Right? So that's the second time. And now look at the section right after the one that we're looking at right there in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And so right here you're starting to see that what Peter is after, having seen the resurrected Jesus, what does it matter now? It matters now that God's people learn to love and follow deeply after him and obey him. Now, he starts to flush out what obedience looks like in our passage, and he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so what Peter is doing, I think he's flushing out what does it mean to obey the Lord. And the first part of obeying the Lord, it is not being conformed to something over here. 
Now, Paul would say the pattern of the world. Peter says the pattern of your former igno- uh, disobedience or, or ignorance. But, but take that in, that if we're going to be holy, if we're going to follow after God, it, is, it does mean that there's a pattern out here. There's a pattern that the, of the way the world thinks. There are, are desires that we have. And what Peter is saying is that obedience means not doing some things. But it doesn't just mean, well, if I avoid, 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 and don't do that, and don't do that, and don't do that, and don't do that, that somehow that makes me holy. No, Peter says there's another side to holiness where it is actually caught up in being holy as your Father in heaven is holy. And so it's not doing that, but it is then aligning our conduct and our speech and our desires around who God is, right? Now, here's the beautiful part, right? How do we know what God is like? How do we know what the pattern is? I mean, on the one hand, we can see it in Jesus, but catch what Peter says in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, and then he starts to talk about the Word of God. And so in Peter's mind, there's a pattern out here in the world. And he says, don't pattern your life after that, but then be holy as God is holy. Well, how do I know what God is like? I don't make him up in my mind that there has to be a higher authority and the higher authority is the word. And so as I look at the word and see the person and work of Jesus and the the majesty of the father, then I learn what God is like and what I'm called to is to pattern my life around that. Now, here's the next question. To what extent, right? Well, what area, God, do you want my holiness? Is it just in how I speak or is it in my dress? Is it in my, how I spend my money, how I spend my time? Notice what Peter actually says in our passage. He actually says in verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Whoa. All of it? You won't like all of it? You mean that there's not one square inch of my life and my conduct that you don't say, I want you to image me there? And that's hard. Because I think we got like, like, you know, if you're like me, I got certain things I feel like, oh, I'm, I'm doing good in that department, right? I'm good here, and I'm good here, and I'm good here. But like over here, oh, no. Like, and, and God is saying, I want it all. I want it all. If you're going to image me, I want it all from how you date, from who you date, from how you view yourself in your singleness to how you face the news that you have cancer. I want you to be holy with how you deal with that. I want you to be holy as you go through a hard divorce. I want you to be holy as you parent your children. I want you to be holy as you take care of aging parents. I want you to be holy as you care for your aging spouse. God is saying, you name something and I want holiness right there. Now, why would he say it? Because he's holy everywhere. And in him there is no shifting or shadow due to change. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of like Peter, bro. Like, why in so many verses are you pounding obedience, 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 right? And that kind of feels, oh, man, bag up a little bit, Pastor L. But here's my, my theory. I can't prove it. But we've been working through Mark as a congregation. And I find myself kind of going back to Mark to kind of get a window into Peter because some scholars say that Peter is actually the one that's kind of narrating what's happening in Mark, that that Mark is interviewing him. We can't prove it. But here's what you find in Mark's gospel. Peter had a brother, and Peter and his brother were fishermen. And you remember in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus comes to Peter and says, follow me. You know what happens in Mark chapter 1? Peter leaves the fishing with his brother where they go together. They go after Jesus. And you want to know what happens in Mark chapter 1? Mark says, and immediately it was the Sabbath. And immediately Jesus went into a synagogue. And immediately there was a man possessed by an unclean or evil spirit. And when Jesus told the evil spirit to come out of the man, immediately the spirit came out. And do you want to know what Peter said? 
who is this? Who is this that the evil spirits obey? And that's not the only time. You remember when Peter and the disciples in Mark chapter 4, they were on the sea and the storm started to come and the waves started to crash and the wind started to blow and Jesus got in there. And what did Jesus say? He says, peace, be still. And the, and the storm stopped. It was quiet and they were afraid of Jesus. And you know what they said there? Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey? Now, if I'm Peter, and the first thing I see when you call me from fishing and you take me into a synagogue and a man with an unclean spirit, the spirit comes out, and then you take me on the water and the waves obey, obedience might be really high up in my priority list, right? The winds. The waves, nature, creation, evil spirits, they bow before its maker. And I think what Peter is getting at is if the winds and the waves and the people who haven't been redeemed and the evil spirits who have been consigned to judgment, if they have enough audacity to obey the maker... How can we, made in the image of God, bought with the price of the blood of Christ, how can we not obey? How many of you wake up, and, and I'm guilty of it, I wake up and I, it doesn't cross my mind, you're my maker. You made me to know you and to love you and to obey you. Who wakes up like that? And I think that's what Peter is getting at. I, he's seen it. He's watched winds and waves and the demonic bow the knee of Jesus. And then we pet and stroke our disobedience. It's a big deal. Obedience is a big deal, right? Second thing we see in our text is that there are big obstacles that challenge our obedience. So obedience is a big deal. The second thing I think Peter is doing is showing us these big obstacles that make obedience so hard. Now, this is not a systematic theology on why we disobey. I want to stay true to this particular text. And here's what I think Peter lists three reasons why obedience is hard. And I, and, I, and I pray that this kind of resonates with your soul. And this isn't just information coming from the pulpit. I think the first thing Peter says, and you see it in verse 18, look at it with me in your Bibles. Notice what Peter says, that you were ransomed from the futile or futile ways inherited from your forefathers. So if you were to underline something, underline that phrase, inherited from your forefathers. Now, what is Peter talking about? He's talking about, you know, family wisdom, wisdom that you kind of have in your local family, and it kind of gets passed down. And, and in Peter's context, this is ancestral wisdom. Like, we do this, we behave this, we value this, we don't do that. And what Peter is saying, and I, I actually think he's been really gracious. I actually think he's telling people, look, I know where you come from, and I know how you were raised, and I know what you saw growing up, and I know what you saw growing up and what you heard in your homes and what your grandmama and them taught you or what you saw in your neighborhood. I know those things are hard, and it makes it actually difficult to obey because you have a colliding worldview that's colliding with Scripture. Now, how do I know this is what Peter's doing? Ask a teacher who teaches students, right? We know, right, on the one hand, what they do in the classroom is sacred and special and it's good. But every teacher will also tell you that I can't do this alone. That when my kids go back to their homes, the stuff they see and experience in their homes it shapes how they behave and, and view the world in the classroom, right? Ask somebody who grew up in a neighborhood without a father, 
and the only people in the community that you respected were dope boys, right? Who had money, who had women, who had dope, and right? The only people you saw were, were gangbangers, right? And so you're a little boy growing up in this environment. Daddy ain't there, right? And so all of a sudden, when this dude promises you protection, you roll with me, homie. You choose my side. I'm going to make sure your mama and them eat. I'm going to make sure nobody in the hood messes with you. You cannot tell me that kid's worldview is not shaped by this wisdom that's being passed down. Right? Think about racism and how racism works. I guarantee you right now, for the most part, that in our nursery right now, you got black kids, you got white kids, you got biracial kids, and you got some Asian kids, right? And here's what I can promise you. I can promise you they're not fighting over race. Right? They're going to do stuff kids do, like be selfish with their toys. But they, in their little two-year-old minds, they're not assigning worth to someone because they're a different shade, right? And so here's what we learn about racism. It's bred. And what do I mean by being bred as opposed to being born? It's something our children pick up on when they hear our snark remarks, when they see who we associate with and who we don't associate with. When they hear the comments, when we watch the news, they hear this going back and forth. We think it's so harmless, and it's not harmless. Peter is saying, you're passing something down. You're passing this wisdom, this, this way that you're treating and viewing the world. It's seeping into your children, and you wonder why when they're 25, they act like they act. It's wisdom, right? It's not just in those areas, right? Those are kind of painting with big strokes. It's how you deal with stress. It's if you're going to be vulnerable and show weakness and show that I'm a dad and, and I mess up and I need forgiveness. It's shown with, with, with how we value the Lord's day, right? If we think Sunday is just the day to watch football and watch basketball and to sleep in, here's the thing. And look, I promise you, y'all, I'm not throwing shade. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to shame you, I promise. I'm just saying what Peter is saying is that worldview is passed down. We start to raise children who start to have a certain view about the Lord's day. And you know where they got it from? From the ancestors from their forefathers. I think Peter says, I know it's hard because the gospel says, do not forsake the gathering of the saints. And what you're trying to do is reconcile the gathering of the saints with what you've seen and what you've heard. And so when it's motivated, when you're motivated to go and be, belong, you know what you got? You got a war that's happening. There's a war between what the scripture is calling you to and what you've seen. But it's not just that, that Peter says, not the inherited ways that we get that, that, that makes obedience hard. It's also ignorance. Did you catch it in verse 14? Peter actually says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So underline that. He's, what, what is he getting at? I think he's getting at this idea that this truth from this word it doesn't just download itself into our minds and our hearts, right? It just doesn't. That the way we come to a knowledge of truth is through hearing and feasting and reading and hearing the Word of God. And I think what Peter is getting at, that there, there was a time when you either did not know the, the Word or you knew it but did not know the nuance and depth to it, right? And so because of that, we behave in a certain way, and it's out of ignorance. It's because we didn't know any better. And I'll give you one example, right? Man, if you would have stopped me, I won't go back to how many years ago, but I thought I was a pretty cool cat, right? I thought me and God was cool, right? I ain't got no bodies, right? In terms of like, I ain't murdered nobody. I ain't got no bodies on my name. So I'm looking at this commandment like, okay, yeah, I'm not a murderer. 
and adultery. No, I ain't slept with nobody else's wife. We good, Lord, right? You know, have y'all gone through that? Where you actually look at his commandments and you look at the externals and you say, yep, I'm good. Yep, I'm good. Yep, I'm good. And then you're not good. Because when you are exposed to what Jesus who says, you have heard that it was said that you should not murder. But I say to you, if you call your brother a fool, you are liable to the fires of hell. You have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even look at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery in your heart. What is Jesus doing? He's not playing fair. That's what he's not doing. He's actually saying, you think you're okay because you don't have no bodies, you don't have no charges against your name, and you never slept with nobody else's wife or a husband. You think you're good, right? Come a little deeper. And you, you live this whole life. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And then you hear what Jesus says in Matthew. You're like, whoa, whoa, dog, I'm not good. I done broke all of your laws. All of them. I think that's what Peter is saying. We can live in such a way that we get entangled in, in our ignorance and we go down this path of rebellion and we're at, we actually think we're okay. The last thing he says, these inner passions. So it's not just your inherited feudal ways from our families. It's not just our ignorance to the law or to the word, but it's our inner passions. Did you catch what he says right there in verse 14? Do not be conformed to the passions associated with your former ignorance. What are those passions? These are the sinful cravings and desires. And you know what? Peter doesn't quantify them. And we might label them other things. I think we, you know, for example, if you're a teenager, we call it peer pressure. That's, that's kind of the Americanized word. That's the, the psychological term. But I think behind it, let's kind of call it what it is. I care more about what my friends think than what my Jesus thinks. Right? And therefore, when I care more about what they think, that inner passion to be pleasing to them, to be noble in their sight, to be on the in crowd, that, that inner passion, that inner desire to fit in. Right? Behind it, it's an idolatry of another person who's going to die just like you. Think about grinding, right? Hashtag grinding. Hashtag committed. Hashtag getting my money, right? All of these ways that we come up with these clever ways to talk about ambition. I'm grinding, right? I'm getting it, right? Nose to the ground. We, I'm, I'm going to make it, right? But behind it, could it not be an idolatry of fame? of independence, right? Where we give our life to this inner desire to matter and to show that we matter more than other people. It's an inner desire, an inner passion. And here's what Peter is saying. I think what he's saying is like, look, Ma, I, I know. I know. I know the way you were raised makes it hard to want to give. Because you live check to check. I know the way that you were raised. It makes you scared to commit to marriage because you saw people with failed marriages, right? And so you'll date somebody for 30 years, right? I know what it's like, Peter is saying, to have these inner desires and longings. And here is what Peter is trying to say. It resonates with me. These are really big barriers to obeying. Now, here's the third point. Jesus bore a big cross for all of your disobedience. Obedience is a big deal, and there are big barriers or challenges, but we believe that Jesus bore a big cross for all of it. Now, now, now why would I bring the cross? Why would I interject the cross of Christ here? Here's why. There should be some tension that we all feel, whether we're Christians or non-Christians this morning. And here is the tension. Track with me. God demands obedience. And it would be unloving for me to not tell you that. 
and the punishment for disobedience against a holy and righteous God, it is death. It is hell forever out of his presence. And we ought to feel that tension. And we see it in our passage, right? Did you notice what Peter says about God in verse 17? He's not just holy if you call on him as father. And notice what Peter says, who judges impartially to each one's deeds. So that, that, that's the sledgehammer right there. It says he's an impartial judge. What does that mean, Pastor L? It means that the good old boy network that we kind of have going on in Mississippi, well, like if I get a ticket, I know a cousin who know a cousin who got a nephew who got a homeboy who work at the police station and they can pull my ticket because I know somebody at the station, even though I'm guilty of speeding and breaking the law because I got to connect, then you can wipe it away, right? It's just who you know. That is, that is so much a part of the fabric of Mississippi, right? You ask somebody, the, the, the second question, who are your people? Or, or what school did you go to? Or where are you from? Like, like, why do we do that? You go to New York, don't nobody ask you that. It's in the South because we have this good old boy network going on. Well, if I know the right people and can make the right moves, then I can benefit because I know the man. And here's the thing God says. God says, I don't care who you know. You don't have enough pool. You don't have enough money. You don't have enough clout that I am the impartial judge who will look at every one of your individual deeds and I will come in judgment. And you got to hear that. Now, when I say that Jesus bore a big cross and this is the appropriate time to interject him, it's because Peter does. Notice what Peter says about Jesus in verse 20, that he was made manifest. That, 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 look at it in verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in these last days. Right? Look at what, what Peter says about Jesus in verse 19. He was like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Now, why would Peter say Jesus was, with, was like a lamb without spot or blemish because in the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system, you could not bring a sacrifice that had the mains. You could not bring the sacrifice who had all his ribs showing because he had a stomach ulcer. You could not bring a sacrifice that had a spot or blemish. If you were a priest or the high priest, you had to find the choice sacrifice, the strongest, the best, the most beautiful, the most impeccable piece of animal you could find. And that is what you had to bring. And so what is Peter saying? Peter is saying in the same way that the priest would bring the impeccable sacrifice and make an atonement, he says, that is Jesus. Now look at it in its context. He tells us to obey and to be holy as Jesus, as God is holy. But then he tells us that Jesus was without spot or blemish. You know what he's trying to get at? You have a problem with obedience. You're stained and you're guilty. But there's another one who doesn't. And his name is Jesus. And what happened to this Jesus, this perfect one? Notice what Peter says in verse 19, right? He says that, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish, what Peter is getting at is that this lamb was slain, that he was crucified, that he was strung up on a cross and beaten and smitten and spit upon and bruised. Now, why was the innocent one who has committed no sin, no deceit in his mouth, who never, ever disobeyed, why in the world was he crushed with death? And you know what Peter says in verse 18? In order to ransom us from the futile ways that we have inherited from our forefathers from the futile ways of our former ignorance, from the futile ways of our inner corruptions. Peter is saying that tension that we ought to feel about not being adequate, about not being to obey, being able to obey, and this idea that God is just, that that tension is only resolved on the cross. 
There's no other place to resolve the tension. There was a man, and his name uh, was Ralph Braun. And Ralph felt this tension. On the one hand, he uh, wanted to live a vibrant, successful life. But Ralph was crippled. He suffered from muscular dystrophy. So on the one hand, he wants to thrive. He wants to get out there and get it. He wants to produce and make a living and, and, and provide for his family. But then there's a problem, right? And that problem is muscular dystrophy. And so you have this tension, this desire to do and to thrive, but this inability. And here's what we know about his story. When he was younger, his father used to carry him everywhere he went. And then he got too heavy. And so he and his father, uh, they got a wheelchair. And even when he was in a wheelchair, he still couldn't thrive. And so when he got old enough to get a job, he wanted to work. He says, Daddy, I really want to work. And so they invented the world's first mobility scooter. And he went and he worked in a factory in his hometown for years. And then that factory relocated and went far uh, 30, 45 minutes away, and you know what he did? He says, Dad, I want to work. And they went back to the garage, and they bought a Jeep, an old Jeep, and they converted it. They took all the normal driving mechanisms out. They made it so that he could steer and drive with his hands, right? And then they started getting orders after orders after orders after orders because people all over the country who had similar conditions, who had been paralyzed and unable to go out and do the common things like vote and hold a job and go to the store. And that's where we get the brawnability vehicles that you see out there now. It's like a, a Dodge Caravan. They got a lift in it and you can have someone in a wheelchair, and they're driving with their hands, that comes after this guy. This guy devoted his entire life to helping people who were unable, unable, and crippled by their bodies. I can't do it. He says, I will devote my entire life to making sure that you who are weak can live. You get inside of my vehicle, it will be tailor-made, and you can drive and you can function. Is that not a picture of the gospel? Does Jesus not say to you in this room, I know you're crippled by your disobedience. And I know you can't live and thrive on your own. But I specialize in creating a safe place for crippled people by their sin. You come in and be in me, and you can live. And you can live. And here is what this means. It means that all of those things that we think have bound us. Pastor L, you don't know about my past, bro. You don't know what I done got into. You don't know what I done seen. And I'm saying, yeah, I do, but the cross is bigger. Pastor L, you don't know about the choices I've made. Yeah, I do, but the cross is bigger. Pastor L, you don't know what situation I'm in right here and right now. There is no grace, and I'm saying the cross is bigger. Do you believe that Jesus specializes in collecting weak and crippled people and bringing them to himself and rescuing them from God's judgment and enabling them by his grace and by his spirit to start living lives that pleases the Father? It's a big cross. Our last point this morning is we're part of a bigger story. Now live. If this is true, if that tension of my inability to obey and the strength and beauty and mercy of Christ, if those things are aligned, then here is what it means. I am not just rescued from the judgment of the Father, which is true, it also means that same Father gives me grace and strength and power 
right here and now to live like it's true. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, A Hole in Our Holiness, he says, the first thing we must establish is that holiness is now possible for those in Christ. It might sound humble to say, I cannot obey God for one nanosecond in my life, but that is not true. Acting like holiness is out of reach for the ordinary Christian does not do justice to the way the Bible speaks of Zechariah, Elizabeth, Paul, or Job. It does not take into consideration the Great Commission where Jesus commissioned disciples and told them to go to the nations that the nations might obey everything Jesus commanded. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. In the words of Romans 12, we can live in a way that is acceptable to God. You hear what he's pushing? He's pushing against that, okay, I'm a, I'm a maggot, right? I'm a worm, and you died on the cross, and I'm always going to be a maggot, and there's no good thing I can do. Even my righteous deeds are filthy rags, right? He's like, no. You've been pardoned and cleansed in Jesus. You can go live and be holy. Now, here's my question. Why is that hard to sink in? Why is it hard? We, we know this cognitively. I mean, if we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, then surely we can believe that I can be new. But why does it feel so hard? Kurt Thompson, in his book, The Soul of Shame, which I am not done with, so do not, like, fill it in. Like, I'm, I'm still working through it. Uh, but in uh, one chapter, he talks about the integrated mind, and he talks about the mind and the brain and, and how it works. And, and there are nine domains to the brain, but one of those domains is this idea of narrative, right? And he goes on to say that our minds naturally try to make sense of our lives. We take inputs and experiences and memories, and, and, and they speak to us, and they start to forge this narrative or this story that touches deep down into the fabric of who we are. And he says, thus, who I am is always shaped by my relationships and history and experiences. And when our memories become inundated with failure and pain and weakness and inability and defeat, we then begin to construct a narrative that predicts a bleak and pessimistic future. This starts a spiral of disintegration. You know what he's saying? He's saying, look, this is, this is me trying to make sense of it. In the brain, we're, we're taking things in, cues, right? We're taking words. We're taking things that we've seen. We're taking things that we've done. We're taking our weaknesses and our struggles and the brain is somehow creating this narrative that tells you who you are, right? And so it, that's the reason why it's hard for someone to get out of entrapping sins because they know themselves as a failure. And shame stays there, and it just rides them and rides them, and it rides them, and it does not lift. And that's, the, and that's the danger, right, that our minds are forming this narrative. And here's the solution, right? The solution is we have to find a bigger story that we're a part of. And so here's the thing. I think the way that I think about the gospel, here's how I think about Jesus. I think about me and all of my mess and all of my junk, and I think about God fitting himself in my story. Well, you're just here to, to, to make sure uh, you, you let me into heaven. You don't really like me. You're tolerating me. Look at me, right? I, I'm, this is going through in my mind. And he makes the statement, you can't try to fit God in your little story. We actually need to fit ourselves in his bigger story. And here is the beauty would you believe that in Jesus, you and I have a new beginning, a new past, a new birth, a new father, a new power, a new home, and a new future? You don't have to remember all of that. Just track with me, right? 
Did you notice what he says about Jesus right there in verse 20? It says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. This idea of foreknowledge, this means, right? Let me try to explain it. This means that God has always known his son. There was never a time in the son's existence when he was not at the right hand of the father. We make the mistake to think that Jesus' beginning began when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He is God of very God, the Alpha and the Omega. There has never been a time that he has not existed, right? Now, go back up to 1 Peter 1 and look up there at verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And notice what it says in verse 2, and he's talking about you, Christian. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, please make the connection. If you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, then you know what that means? It means that your life did not begin when your mother birthed you. It means that you're in a bigger story. It means that from all eternity, your father has set his love upon you. It means that it, before the foundations of the world, when the Father knew the Son, you want to know who else he knew and who else he loved? He knew and loved you. The beginning of your life is not when you were born. Your life has been in Jesus, hidden in him from eternities upon eternities, right? Think about the second thing. You have a new past that, that God did bring Jesus to live and to die and to be raised. And here's the thing. That is your defining moment of your past. And I know we have a past and we have stuff that we want to look at. Look, I did that. I did that. And you know what God says? But I did that. I did that. I did that. But I did that. And, and God's voice needs to be louder. Our past is hidden with the Lord Jesus. So that when, Jesus, when God looks at us, he does not see the sum total of the bad decisions and sinful choices we've made. You know what he sees? I see you in my son. And it's not just that, right? We have a new birth. Look at it in verse 3 of, of 1 Peter. He actually says, blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. So we are born again, and we died as, as sinners, and we have been raised as sons. Did you catch what Peter says about our new identity? We're, we're, we're born again, but we also have a new father. Look at verse 14, as obedient Children. That's the phrase there. Children. We call on him as father. You're not related to God as a judge anymore. He is your father. De Young goes on to say, which parent would take the drawings their children draw even though it's stick figures, right? And ball them up and say, not good enough. No, if you're a father or a mother, you string those stick figures and those bad drawings right on your refrigerator and you show them off because you're pleased with it. Why do we think when we try to be holy that God is somehow bawling that up and saying, nope, not good enough. I need some 3D rendering if you're going to draw a person. No. God takes our attempts at holiness and he strings it out on the refrigerator and says, I love it. I want it. I delight in it. 
We have new power. You're chosen by the Father, saved by the Son. And notice what Peter says in verse 2 of chapter 1, and you will be sanctified by the Spirit. You have a new home. Peter says that we are in exile here on earth. This is no longer our home, but to be with him is our home. And we have a new future. Do, did you see what Peter says Jesus is going to bring with him? Right there in verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but which environment breeds the desire to be holy? I'm a worm, and you just tolerate me. Or this environment, I've known you before all time. And I know, I knew what you were going to do. And I still chose you and lodged you in my son. And I sent my son and your life is hidden with him. And all of these things that imprison you, they have been charged to the cross of Christ. I will make you be born again and I will put my spirit in you who will sanctify you. And guess what? You're not relating to me as a judge, but as a father. And I'm pleased with every single effort that you take to be holy in my sight. And all of your failures, they're on a cross. And guess what? When my son comes back, he's coming back to give you grace and love and mercy. Which environment motivates holiness? This one. And that's why Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action, be sober-minded, and set your hope fully on that. Set it there, Redeemer. Wake up believing the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we bless you, love you, and pray your blessings upon your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for our time. Father, I do pray that obedience would be pleasing and desirous and joyful in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.